Hi, you've reached the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Please leave a message. Uh, hello, hello, Mario. Uh, uh, this is Celebrity Gardener uh, Dermot Gavin here. Uh, I just want to say, I, I heard a, a little birdie in the garden uh, told me that uh, Dermot Whelan is going to be on the show. And I just want to say, great, great idea having him on. He's truly uh, something special. He's like... Oh, to see what he's doing now, he's, he's in full bloom, like a, like a hydrangea in, in early June. And he's deep. He's a deep, deep thinker. He's deeper than a, than a trailer full of mulch. So great work. He's really the he's, he's an absolute genius, if you ask me. And he's great around the garden. Goodbye, Mario. Hello there, Mario. It's a Terry Wogan here, calling from the other side. I hear you've got Dermot Whelan on the podcast. You know, I know I'm dead, but I'm dead excited about hearing him. He's a genius. And unlike you, his mind isn't completely blankety-blank. <laughs> There's a bit of a TV joke there. Anyway, enjoy. All right, all right, all right, Mario. It's, uh, it's Matthew McConaughey here. Uh, here you got Dermot. Uh, Dermot Whelan on the podcast. That's uh, that's good. That's that's real good. That guy's uh, he's sexy. He's sexy. He, he's the sexiest man I know. I don't say that lightly. So uh, if you have him on the podcast, that's going to be all right. All right. All right. Beautiful. See you soon. Yeah, and that was just a little taste of what's to come from the brilliantly talented Dermot Whelan, uh, my colleague uh, on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Thanks to you for listening in. And thanks also to Curry's PC World, proud supporters of the Mario Rosenstock uh, podcast. I'm absolutely delighted uh, that Curry's got involved, um, not only uh, personally for myself and Patrick and everybody that's responsible for putting the podcast together, but also because it's heartening that a big, big company like Curry's would get involved in this, which I know you understand now is a really exciting, creative, independent and democratic medium that all of us are having so much fun either making like I'm doing or listening to it uh, like you out there. Um, the last year has been huge for podcasts. And it's been a pleasure working with Curry's. And I hope, as I said, it's the beginning of a beautiful uh, friendship. OK, it's great to have you back here with me. And not only do we have the brilliantly talented uh, Dermot Whelan coming up for a great chat. But as usual, new and exclusive comedy sketch. This week, we were going to go live. We will be going live um, to the steps of Stormont, um, where we hope Tommy Gorman will be standing live to update us on um, the, uh, the contest for the leadership of the DUP Uh, but first here's a little clip of what you can expect the best of from my chat with Dermot coming up in a few minutes anyway I pulled the car over I got picked up in an ambulance and I remember they gave me that one piece of incredibly high-tech HSE equipment a brown paper bag um, which (laughs) which still (laughs) smelled of whatever sandwiches had been in it I became fascinated with that weird look that dogs give when they're going for a crap. You know, they have this kind of sheepish sort of, don't look at me. I I became obsessed with that. So I wrote a song about it. The fact that he did it at the Golden Globes in front of a squirming Tom Hanks and all the people who, you know, 
were so full of their own celebration in that arena and he didn't care. He ripped through all of them. So I spend my time walking around going, Professor Snape. <laughs> Professor <laughs> That's Snape. Harry Potter. <laughs> all that coming up in just one moment. But first, yes... I have him here. He's in my ear. He may not be working for RTE anymore, but Tommy Gorman has uh, kindly offered to do a stint with the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Is he there? Yeah, he is. Okay, Tommy Gorman. We go live out to Tommy Gorman, who's going to update us on the latest in the DUP leadership contest. Over to you, Tommy. Thanks, Mario. Here in Stormont Castle, interviews to become the next leader of the DUP are currently taking place on Zoom. Let's go inside. Alright, who have we got next? So, uh, let's bring him up on screen here. No. How, how are you doing? Hello how are you? there, gentlemen. Can you see me? Okay. Uh, not really. Uh, Is that no. a wee pillowcase on your head there, friend? Oh, sorry, sorry. That's better. That's That's better. Great. Hi, Edwin. Tis yourself. Edwin. Sorry, I must have got out of bed uh, the wrong side. A bed I slept in, I would have you know, with a woman. God's right. way. God's way. The only way there is, Pootsie. So, so you want to be leader of the DUP, Pootsie. Yes. Give us your weak points and your strong points. Well, I believe the Earth is 6,000 years old exactly. I do not believe in evolution. I have said that gay men should not be allowed to donate blood. However, I do believe homosexuals can be cured. Right. So what about your weak points? <laughs> what? Don't mind them, Pootsie. Yeah, right. We will be in touch. Okay, who's next? Ah, tis yourself, Jeff. State your name for the record. Jeffrey Donaldson, running for the DUP yeah. leadership. What strengths can you bring to the leadership? Well, as I'm almost yeah. now physically indistinguishable from the country singer Daniel O'Donnell, I thought <laughs> I could right use up. it as an advantage, uh, thereby confusing weak Catholics into inadvertently voting for the DUP. You're a doppelganger right enough, so Aye. how would you? You could go about well, it though. What? what about this for a campaign song? Go ahead. Go ahead. I want to dance with ye <laughs> all across the border. Don't you just love the orange order? I just love the DUP. Great stuff, Jeff. Great, Great stuff. Jeff. We'll, Thanks, let, we'll let you know. We'll let you know. Right. Who's next? I don't believe it. Hello? Good evening to all my friends in the great state of Northern Ireland. This is Donald Trump, and today. I am announcing my candidacy for leadership of the great party, the DUP great party. Mr. Trump, this is highly irregular. We have all the candidates. We have Jeffrey Donaldson. Why would you need Donaldson when you have Donald? I love that house, Stormont. Great house, big house, big, white, white, white house. Hey, what policies do you have, Mr. Trump? I'm going to tear down that border. That's unacceptable to the DUP. And build a wall. Well, now you're talking. (laughs) (laughs) What other kind of qualifications do you have? The application says it all, gentlemen. Wanted. I have it here. Misogynistic, homophobic bigot. I put the big into bigot. Who loves the queen. Needs to be 100% orange man. Nobody is more orange than me, folks. Let's make the DUP great again. When, when can, can you start? start? And that's definitely one to watch um, over the next little while or so. I think the actual election is on the 14th of, um, of May, and it will be very interesting to see uh, what happens there. Um, if you're liking what you hear so far, 
on this podcast. If you've been tuning into all the episodes, um, Ian Dempsey, Ronan O'Gara, George Hook, Joanna Reardon, Suzanne Kane, uh, Connor Moore, uh, and everybody else. If you're liking what you hear, please follow, subscribe, and leave a review. It helps, and it's all for free. Just get involved. Get your finger out. Um, okay, so let's get to my chat with Dermot. There's so much in this. There's impressions, as you'd expect from two impressionists. He's really, really good. Um, there's stories. He's a great storyteller. Tears, laughter, and at the very end, I offer a chance to Dermot to either be interrogated by Miriam O'Callaghan, celebrated by Christy Moore, or eviscerated by Roy Keane. Can you guess which one he chooses? Put it this way. He's a brave man. Enjoy. Dermot, welcome to my podcast. Thanks so much, Mario. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast or in your yeah. podcast. Or, and you're all in it. You're inside it. You're, no, you're inside each other. Um, the, <laughs> the People would think, you know, we're colleagues and everything. We'd probably bump into each other every day and we talk loads. But of course, we never get to talk. I never get to talk to you. The last time I probably talked to you properly was when I had you on the radio as a guest. And the last time you talked to me was when you had me on the radio as a guest. So we never get to talk because you fly in to these three hour sessions with Dave and then you're flying home and I'm gone by that time or else I'm recording. So it's great to have you on, on the podcast. And of course, opportune enough as well because of the book and an amazing, an amazing result in the last few weeks because people went, um, oh, did you hear about Dermot's book? It went to number one. And then a week later, it was like, Dermot's book is still at number one. And then a week later, Dermot's <laughs> book is still at number one. And it's just not leaving anymore. And so I, just to tell the audience so that they'd know, I sent, I sent you over a few questions in advance uh, to kind of focus our conversation. I guess one of the questions that you could kick off with was, when you write a book, um, you pour a lot of your... Uh, you put a lot of your soul and your heart into it. And you suppose you go through to a sort of a, to use a Louis Walsh uh, aphorism, a kind of a journey. And at the end of it, you probably spit all these things out. And so what I wanted to ask you, uh, Dermot, is, is there anything that's on your mind? Is there anything you'd want to get off your chest? Is there anything that's been bugging you? What do you have for me, Dermot? <laughs> well, you know what? I would love to start with something, which is one of the reasons why I ended up writing the book, Mindful, um, is because uh, these kinds of things annoy me to such an extent that I thought, you know what? I need to expose this for what it is. And it's Instagram meditators. OK, because a lot of people have preconceptions about meditation. And I certainly did when I came to it over 10 years ago, when I was a bag of stress and drinking too much and not knowing what to do with crazy things that were going through my head. So I, I eventually stumbled into meditation, but I had to wade through the nonsense that you see on social media that puts so many people off. It's the people the, who, who put themselves up meditating, in air quotes, um, while they're sitting somewhere absolutely beautifully picturesque. It's always a wooden jetty on a lake. It's a cliff top. It's somewhere at the Himalayas that you can only get to by helicopter. <laughs> like... These people are always very beautiful, flawless skin, um, and they always wear white flowy clothes. Now, as Irish people, we can't wear those, okay, because we look like we're in our (laughs) pyjamas or we've escaped from somewhere with very high gates, okay? So, um, you know, and as my mother says, there's no heat in them. So it's just not practical. And, you know, when people, when I see those pictures of people sitting in the lotus position with their eyes closed, you know, as if they are meditating. It annoys me because I feel like screaming for anyone looking at them feeling maybe less than. It's they're not meditating because 
their friend is taking a picture of them on their iPhone so that they <laughs> yeah. can upload it straight away to Instagram. You know, they're not getting enlightenment. They're getting likes. OK, so that's not yeah. meditation. Uh, meditation is noisy. You get interrupted. Dogs bark. You do it in your car. I did it this morning on the train. Um, I do it on my two-seater Harvey Norman couch. I'll do it wherever, you know, and you get interrupted and you can wear whatever you like. You just need to be warm and you don't have to sit with your legs tied into the shape of a Bavarian pretzel and you don't have to sit so upright that it looks like somebody <laughs> stuck a yard brush up where it shouldn't have been stuck. So they're, they're the kind of myths that I, I want to bust. Yeah, yeah. Just what you just said there, Harvey Norman and meditation. I just don't think they go together. Harvey Norman, have you decided to meditate on my couch? If not, start fucking meditating now for 1999 and I will meditate the arse off you. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, listen, I, 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 before you came on, I put meditating, meditators on Instagram into, into the Google. And the first thing I found, Dermot, was uh, just a few pictures. And the pictures were of a kind of a man who looked like an Indian man, but may not have been an Indian man. It may have been a fake, very long white wig that he got in a joke shop in Dame Street. And beside <laughs> him, beside him to his left was a fake, was a picture of a fat Buddha with his belly button uh, hanging out. And beside that was another girl and she was gorgeous and she had black hair and she was clearly posing for the camera. But beside her was another Buddha with a fake, with a belly button hanging out. And the third picture was Russell Brand. <laughs> well, there you go. And people think that, well, look, if I go, like one of the questions I get asked the most is, if I start this, will I become no crack? And, you know, to an Irish person, that is, it's a, it's a sentence worse than death. You know, the fact that you <laughs> would, would ever be accused of being, of being no crack, um, because that's what people see. You're exactly right. If you Google meditation, that's what's going to come up. And people worry, well, OK, so to get a bit of, uh, you know, de-stress going on in my life, I now have to start dressing like Russell Brand. I have to grow my hair long. I've got to wear loose fabric, you know, um, and that's that's I, I will essentially become no crack. Um, and so that's what I want to reassure people, because you mentioned Harvey Norman there. Like that's a perfect, actually a perfect voice to have imitated, because for a lot of us, the inner critic in our mind is a lot like having the Harvey Norman voiceover guy. It, you know, that's the thing that stresses us out. It's like, go, go, go. You should be doing more. You should be getting up mm. earlier. You know, get mm. out there, get the bargains, succeed. Mm. <laughs> um, so meditation is a way, I suppose, of, of turning down the volume of your internal Harvey Norman voiceover. And uh, you don't have to look like Russell Brand. <laughs> um, our, our hang up pictures of those flat stones that are stacked on top of each other. That's another one that I can never relate. It just accepted that that's a symbol for wellness. Um, and nobody has access yeah. to such perfect flat stones. A lot of the time it just comes from an, an innocent desire of people to belong to something, you know, and wherever we are, if we want to belong to something, we tend to start wearing the uniform. Um, you know, it's even if you're, you know, I do a lot of talks in multinationals, those, those big corporations and people can wear what they want, but they always look like they're wearing a uniform. They have the T-shirt with the company logo on it. Um, they have a lanyard around their neck with the logo on it. Um, and they all kind of look the same in their 
attempts to look like individuals. And I think that's just a natural thing that we tend to do as humans. We want to belong. So sometimes in the spiritual or wellness community, you can find yourself doing that and you may think, well, now I just wear yoga pants uh, to weddings. That's what I do. Um, Mm. But, you know, I, I don't think it's always sinister. I just think that that's what's been marketed to a lot of people and that's what puts people off. So my mission was to cut through a lot of that and write the book because the books that I read were either too like that, too woo-woo, too spiritual, or else they were too academic, you know, and I felt like I was getting the PhD while I was reading the book. So for me, I like to bring science into it and I like to cut through all the bullshit that comes with it a lot of the time. Yeah, and maybe you made yours as well, um, peculiarly and particularly Irish as well and rooted in Ireland. I mean, I guess, is it fair to say you kind of started this 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 whole pursuit around 14 years ago and it was by accident and almost, you know, it was this you've well, almost well, pretty well-known story now, Dermot, about um, this journey you were taking. Was it to Kilkenny Cat Laughs and you just didn't want to die in, is this probably you didn't want to die in Mullinavat and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and and it was the Cat Laughs and you just had this incredible panic. Just for people who haven't heard that before, give us the give us the fun-sized version of that story because it is it is a fascinating story and, and Yeah, I think, well, you know, most people in their life won't experience experience a panic attack or an anxiety attack or a big event that makes them go, okay, I need to find a new way to handle stress. But for me, uh, there was, and as you rightly say, I was driving down to the Cat Laughs Comedy Festival. I was new to stand up. So I was still a lot of nerves, you know, I still had a lot of nerves around performing in that kind of pressured arena. Um, Although I was very excited to be there. Um, I was just exceptionally busy at the time and I was doing breakfast radio, which had me up at half four. I was doing comedy clubs at night, which got me home after midnight. So I was sleep deprived and a bit of a basket case. So I was driving there and I had an anxiety attack on the way. I thought I was having a stroke or a heart attack. I didn't know what it was. But anyway, I pulled the car over. I got picked up in an ambulance. And I remember they gave me that one piece of incredibly high-tech HSE equipment, a brown paper bag, um, which <laughs> which still sm- smelled of whatever sandwiches had been in it quite, you know, up to quite recently. Um, oh, and they said, you're hyperventilating. Yeah. Just breathe into that. Um, but, you know, something that struck me was, you know, when I went to the hospital, they checked my heart, they did all that, and they they said, have you a stressful job? And I went, well, I'm a stand-up comedian. And they sort of laughed. <laughs> they went, all right, well, I can't help you there. Um, but uh, when I left the hospital, I, I, there was no advice as to what the uh, episode had meant. It was, you know, it's quite a, it's your nervous system basically screaming at you, you know, that to change your ways. But the people in the hospital didn't have any advice for me. You know, um, I wasn't sure what I was meant to do with that event. You know, what what was I learned from it? Because I wasn't entirely sure what had actually happened to me. But I did notice a lot of people, particularly other comedians, whispering to me later on over the weekend, you know, that happened to me as well. And I was like, why is everybody having yeah. these things and no one's talking about it? Like, this was horrible. Um, yeah, so. Yeah. I, I got 10 minutes of material out of it, I remember, and, and I was kind of happy with that at the time. I was, you know, I was doing it on stage. I remember the audience looking at me going, you had a panic, panic attack on the way here and you arrived in an ambulance. Yeah, Are yeah. you sure you should be up there? Um, but, you know, that's all I knew at yeah. the time. So, you know, that was one of the events that yeah. kind of suggested to me that maybe I needed to handle stress a bit better. 
And the other thing that kind of dovetails with that as well, and something I'm particularly fascinated by because of my own firsthand experience in it, is your relationship with drinking. Because my relationship with drinking is, is, is I, I suppose I, I put it on bordering. It's, it's, I'm just keeping it just barely on the right side of how are you doing? It's lovely to meet you. <laughs> And I've spent basically my whole last 20 years going, we're still mates, you and I, the old booze. In other words, I haven't had to give it up. And I've had to, I've been able to create a relationship with drink that I've had just about enough respect for it that I can still do it. And I still really want to do it. And I, so I still do it. I still I really love drinking red wine and I really love drinking beer. And I'd, I, I, almost the fear of losing that pleasure drives me not to destroy my relationship with it, if that makes any sense to you. But I know that you also had, um, I don't know if it's safe to describe it as a similar relationship, but you had, I suppose, a typical relationship that somebody in your position might have had with drink. Semi-destructive, maybe drink to excess, binge drinking. I mean, apparently binge drinking now is just having more than three, three, three beers, but, you know, seriously going over the top and then kind of going through that recovery thing where you feel awful and then gradually feel better and better and better during the week until I'd come back to Friday. And literally, I feel ecstatic by Friday and I feel so ecstatic. I go, I need a drink to celebrate this ecstasy. So, uh, yeah, and that's the funny kind of round and circles of drink. And so I wonder how the, 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 the drinking uh, dovetailed with your your panic with the mindfulness and how, if if at all, you still manage the drinking or how have you learned to manage your drinking? Yeah, well, back in the, uh, you know, around the time of when that panic attack incident happened, 2007, like most Irish people, all I was using for stress relief was pints, you know, or wine or whatever, because that's all I had learned from the adults around me growing up. You know, there was that was kind of it. Um so I was leaning into it, I suppose, you know, when we're feeling run down, overwhelmed, exhausted. They're the things we kind of lean on. We'll, we lean into the booze or the fizzy jellies or the chocolate or whatever happens to be to hand because it gives us a kind of sense of calm temporarily. What I discovered through, I mean, meditation, when you do that, it creates just enough space for you to kind of get a little slight helicopter view of everything that's happening in your life. So you you come out of the weeds for these little moments and you go, oh, oh, I see. I see what mm. I'm doing there. I get it. And then you might forget again. But you do have these moments of kind of clarity. Um, and I realized that I, I used to be very down after drinking, like really hard on myself. And, and, you know, there's scientific reasons why that happens to us. It's the chemical changes in our brain. But also... For me, I realized that it was amplifying the stuff that was making me drink in the first place, which was negative self-talk. The Harvey Norman angry voice in my head telling me that I wasn't doing enough and I wasn't funny enough and I wasn't a real comedian and I should be earning more and I should be stronger and fitter and healthier. Whatever these things, you know, whatever these voices say in everybody's head. So I realized that every time I drank to excess, I would be miserable because it would crank up the volume. And I, in the book, I call it the nun on the end of my bed, which was a phrase that an old school pal of mine called Dara made up for that feeling of self-judgment um, or the fear, basically, after after a session, that he he would feel like there was a, a nun sitting on the end of his bed. And I just thought that was a great analogy 
um, for that sort of self-loathing fear that in me alcohol was creating. Now, I know that doesn't happen for everybody. So what I did was I found myself less and less inclined to push the boat out when it came to drinking. I started to become more wary of it. And then I said, you know what? I'm sick of dancing around here, you know, with booze. Uh, you know, one minute we're mates and the next minute we're enemies. And I just got so tired of the civil war yeah. in my head, you know, that I said, yes. you know what? I'd like to see what I'm I'd like. I'm like without it. So I stopped drinking for a year and I made it like a project. And I said, I want to see if this is A, worth it, or B, hard to do. So that's what I did. Oh, and I, and in go. the book, tell us, I, tell us. Yeah. So I have, t- I, in the book, I have 10 things I learned from that year of, of not drinking. Um, but like, you know, some of them are, first of all, fear and anxiety. If that's something that you suffer from, anxiety, that will, that will drop immediately. Like, absolutely. Because you're not doing those things to your brain that and causing that imbalance where it tries to overcompensate after a night, a session and has you basically feeling a lot more down, a lot more anxious. You know, that's, there's chemical reasons behind that. Um, I found that obviously I had more energy. I was more patient. I was kinder to myself in my head. So I realized that I was being kinder then to everybody else. Cause you're not taking it out on everyone else. Um, but I also realized as well, you know, not drinking doesn't suddenly make you Superman. Like you can still be shit when you don't drink, you know, like, mm. you know, people mm. have an idea of if, if I could just stop learning into the wine at the weekends, I think I'd be like hiking up Kilimanjaro and I would be, um, you know, rescuing orphans in, in Nepal are, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, you might, you might be a little bit more productive, but you're not going to be suddenly doing everything, you know, but what it does more than anything is that it clears the haze long enough for you to act, face the things that are actually bothering you you know, that are actually standing in your way. And, you know, why is it that we reach for a drink or something like that on, on a Friday night? Because at some level, there are un- we've built up stress, our uncomfortable emotions, our nagging thoughts throughout the whole week. And we're looking forward to just that an- anesthetic for a little while. But that's okay. Mm. Uh, you know, if you if you enjoy the buzz and, you know, it's a bit like, you know, just getting into a rowboat and just pushing out from shore for a few hours. And you're like, ah, I just want to get off dry land just for a little bit. And I can totally relate to that. But I suppose if you're using, you know, the way I'm really acutely aware of how I use it now is that I would love, I love a beer if I'm watching Munster play, you know, Mm. or if I, you know, when my book went to number one, I celebrated with a, a bottle of champagne that someone had sent me. So, you know, I think it's important to mark those occasions. But what I always have to watch out is that am I using it to numb myself or using it to manage stress that's going on? Because I know I have other technique, techniques now that I can use. And, and like, I'm not anti-booze. And if you, if you have a healthy relationship with, with alcohol and, and you feel, do you know what, this is, I love it, I, I do it, it doesn't affect me, then brilliant, go for it. But for me, alcohol is always like, you know, we all have one bad influence friend who who oh, sort yes. of, you know, that maybe your missus hates you or is slightly anxious when you meet up with them. You know, one of those. Yes. Or, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I just it. have, 
<laughs> have such an intense, happy time together. And it's great. Uh, but you know that if you continue to hang around with this friend, bad things will happen. And for me, yes. booze is a bit like that. For some time, for, it just felt like for me that I was sick of it constantly crashing on my couch. So I wanted to, you know, at least give it a while so that it could go and crash on someone else's couch because it was, it's my bad yeah, influence yeah. friend. And if I want to keep things on the straight and narrow, if yes. I want to um, stay optimistic, um, stay really excited about all the projects that I'm working on and my job and friendships and relationships, all the kind of stuff, I have to be really wary about how many times I let him sleep on my couch, you know, so... Um, yeah, I yeah. Well, Dermot, I think I think that's a really, really, really positive attitude, and it's what I'm really, actually, just in a completely selfish way now. I'm completely, ju- I'm just delighted that you didn't give it up completely. That actually, you don't have to give it up completely. That you can actually manage a relationship um, with something like that. But the other, and I'm just going to close off the whole mindfulness thing now because um, sure, I, when I when I when I especially talking to you and listening to you and and uh, and speaking so eloquently about mindfulness, it it occurs to me that those of you who are good practitioners in the mindfulness industry are uh, gracious and uh, down to earth and uh, relaxed and calm and centered but now that you have this number one book which is just raging through the charts I really <laughs> want to believe that there are a bunch of other mindful practitioners just raging with jealousy going I used to be mindful <laughs> half an hour ago until that absolute bollocks David Whelan stayed at number one and kept my fucking book off number one my mindfulness book is way more mindful than his fucking book so uh, uh, I can just imagine that even mindfulness people must lose their head sometime. Anyway, moving on. Um, yeah, it definitely happens. <laughs> moving on. Anyway, I, I sent you a little question, Dermot, because I asked you to write down three names for me, at least three names for me. And the first thing I want to do is ask you, because um, you and I cross over a bit as well in the sense that you are, um, you are, you are a, an impressionist of of, of renown it's just that it's it's kind of um eclipsed a little bit by the fact that you're also basically just a stand-up comedian an author um and a 20-year veteran of the of the radio business so uh some people you know kind of don't you you're, you have many different talents but like one of them is that you're a fantastic impressionist and that's um and that's something that the, one of the first reasons I got to know you because you were doing Martin King and uh, when you were when you were on 98 <laughs> right. FM. and I basically I can now tell you, if you don't do Martin, anybody listening to this podcast, if you can't do Martin King, forget it. Because you're nobody if you can't do Martin King. The worst impressionist in the world can do Martin King. We all do Martin King. There's nobody in Ireland who says they're an impressionist that they can't do. Hello, Martin King here, 102 years of age. Dermot's there, we're all there. In fact, it's so bad that Deirdre O'Kane knows six Irish comedians who do perfect Martin Kings. And she wanted to get, she wanted, she wanted to get us all on the couch on the six o'clock show without Martin King knowing. And we'd all, including you, and we'd all come on and go, Martin King here, how are you, Martin? Oh, Martin is there, Lucy's there, Martin is there, Martin's there. But anyway... Um, I asked you for three names. I'm rabbiting on a bit, but I asked you for three names of, of three three characters that you like uh, doing impressions of. And they were Dermot. Tell me those. Um, I love doing Dermot Gavin, the gardener. Yes. Because I remember watching his TV show years and years ago, um, long before I ever met the man. And I was fascinated with the way he said the word garden because it sounded like it was an accent that actually didn't exist in Ireland. And considering we have so many different accents, I was like, "What? how is he from Dublin and saying it like that? Because he says the word, uh, Gjorden. <laughs> I work in, 
in the garden. Uh, it sound, kind of sounds like it's from Northern Ireland, but it's not. It's uh, it's sort of Wicklow, uh, but but uh, but it's not. It's unique uh, to Dermot. It's Gjorn. I, I love to work in the Gjorn, and he's great because his enthusiasm for everything is absolutely. Uh, uh, and he seems kind of scatty uh, some of the time, uh, and he he, he, he he then slows down like that. Uh, so I just. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I love him. He's I a bit of an artist. He's one of those guys. Oh no, he is an artist. He's like a mad scientist of plants. Yeah, he is. And so we're going to come back to that in a minute because I'm going to ask you. I'm going to uh, uh, put a little um, task for you. So the second one that you chose that you like doing, um, it's Alan Rickman, and it's such a weird one because I I just like to amuse myself. I will walk around s- doing Alan Rickman to myself. Yeah, uh, but. Everyone would know him for as Professor Snape from Harry Potter. Yeah. But I sometimes, you know, I'm sure you know yourself, there are impressions that you can only get right when you're saying a particular word or phrase. And, the, and when you veer off, off menu, then you're, you're, it starts to start to lose it. So I spend my time walking around going, Professor Snape. <laughs> Professor That's brilliant. Snape. Alan Rickman, Harry Potter. (laughs) I'm going to give you a task in a minute because I absolutely adore um, Alan Rickman. But when you sent me that that character, Professor Snape, I hadn't a clue who you were talking about because I've never seen Harry Potter and I didn't know who Professor Snape was. And I was going, how am I going to tell tell Dermot? Fans of Die Hard will remember him from... um, from he from the film because he's the baddie he's Hans Ipikaye Hans and yep. he's uh, Mr. McLean I'm somewhere in the hotel <laughs> Mr. McLean all the glass yes. is broken <laughs> it's brilliant it's brilliant and also but I remember him as well from Truly Madly Deeply with Juliet Stevenson which which is where he first caught my eye and as the uh, the vicious uh, sheriff as well in Robin Hood I think it was Prince of Thieves where he was the sheriff of Nottingham and uh, he oh was that's one right of the greatest baddies that ever that ever that ever created so those are two great impressions and who's your third one that you like that you particularly like doing um my I can't remember <laughs> It's Rory McIlroy. It was Rory McIlroy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. It was Rory McIlroy. Um, because it just, Rory, he, in my head, he's always disappointed. He's he's always disappointed with himself. I'm sure he has ecstatic moments like, you know, he's, there's happy times in his life. But in my head, he's always like, ah, uh, um, you know, felt could have uh, could have played better um, through fourteen. Um, a putter wasn't really yeah. working. It's just always feeling like um, it could have gone better. Um, and that yeah, 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 he, yeah, yeah, no matter, yeah, yeah. He says in his mind going into a press conference, um, Rory, don't say everything that's on your mind. And then they ask him a question, and he goes. Well, I guess I'm now going to say everything that's been on my mind. <laughs> and he just blurts out. Yeah. There's so much truth spilling out of him. He would be great in a in a ma- dysfunctional marital relationship where he has to go to a sex therapist and they ask them, what's going wrong, Rory? 
and he, <laughs> he has to explain yeah. his poor bedroom performance. <laughs> the putter isn't yeah. working. Um, just the putter isn't working, and there's just I I kind of tried. I tried, but um, it wasn't having really difficulty happened. with the um with the shaft. Just couldn't couldn't <laughs> okay. get it. I can see where we're going to go. Get it working. Right, Dermot, we're going to play a little bit. When we do this in the edit, we're going to play a little bit of music behind this because now I'm going to give you a task. And for those out there, jump, get your improv boots on, Dermot, because I'm going to throw a few of those okay. characters at you, right? And you're going to have to do the best you can uh, with these characters, okay? Are you ready? Right. Do what you I'm want ready. now, right? You're ready, right? So, Professor Snape. Professor Snape is looking for help in Woody's. I can be a Woody's employee if you want. <laughs> Hello. I am Professor Snape. I don't know who you are. What do you want? I need help. With what? I'm <laughs> I'm looking for some potted plants. Okay, well, the uh, the furniture, the garden furniture is down there to your left. What, do you want me asking, what's the story with the black cloak? Uh, <laughs> it's used to cover mulch. In my back garden, I put it on to get respect in Woody's, you bitter little man. It's the second oil on the right. (laughs) Okay, well done, Dermot. Dermot Gavin gets a new job in a ladies' beauty salon and is describing some of the most delicate lady treatments available. Okay, so... This is thing. Welcome. Uh, come on, come on, come on. S- t- uh, s- sit down. Uh, what we're gonna do is we're going to uh, we're gonna trim that garden because it's <laughs> overgrown. You lockdown has not been kind. We haven't had the time to dedicate to uh, 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 trimming and pruning and and, and and getting in there to the deeper deeper parts uh, of our own garden. So. Um, I'm going to take out a, a 2,000 watt streamer, uh, Mrs. O'Reardon. <laughs> so uh, strap yourself down. <laughs> Excellent, Jeremy. Okay, Rory McElroy has decided that the only way his golf game is going to uh, improve is by smoking large amounts of weed. <sighs> um, I just feel. Uh... Really, really relaxed. Um, I think if uh, I'm going to try playing golf laying down from now on. <laughs> Do you know what? I think Dermot Gavin is inside Rory McIlroy somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could detect I Dermot Gavin inside Rory McIlroy. But he also then turns into Butch Harmon. Hey, Butch Harmon. Yeah, uh, yeah it's not the worry. Yeah, I do Butch yeah. as well. <laughs> it's it's so annoying uh, because he, yeah. he's got a nickname for all for all the golfers, and he uh, yeah. he goes yeah yeah. I, I was talking to Rory about that on the range. He, we 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 we've been working that out all week. He he he's really flying uh, on the range at the moment. Yeah, you know what I love about the wheelie bin wheeling? I love the way he was putting on 14. I really love that. And I also love the way wheelie bin wheeling, if you take my bad eye and you put Dermot Whelan's butch butch bad eye together, we'd both be blind. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so uh, brilliant, Dermot. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And that goes back, of course, to you. You have no problem with people throwing um, 
stuff at you because you enjoy I- improvisation and everything. I asked you to pick, uh, now this, even though I'm very humble, I did ask you to pick as a matter of interest just three characters you may have enjoyed that I have ever done in the past. And uh, can you remember what ones you sent over to me? Um, well, I absolutely love your Gabo. You know I do because I've cornered you outside the lift on many an occasion to try and get you to, to do Gabo. And, <laughs> and I, I just... I until I heard your impression, I had never heard anyone do Gay Byrne before, and and I didn't realize that he had so many mannerisms. And I remember I I heard you talking about how there are there are different, uh, there's even different styles within the Gaybo impression, which is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is very interesting, Dermot, because um, it, it's very interesting, and I I just thought about that when he died, really. And I started just having a little look back at what Gabo was. And because Gabo spanned generations of Irish people, and because during those generations he was to the forefront of broadcasting and we were exposed to watching him, we got to visibly witness, not to say paint drying, we got to see visibly witness a canvas changing and being painted uh, over the years as it changed. Yeah. And so... A thing that started out as a, a painting of a of a girl then became a painting of a woman until finally it became the Mona Lisa. And I noticed that there were three possibly stages you could break gay into. And that was, um, first of all, it was his almost his, his beginning stage where he was kind of commuting between Dublin and Granada television around the times that yeah. he was meeting the Beatles. And he was kind of doing a little bit of BBC received pronunciation, don't you know? And I'm welcoming back there my old friends from the Beatles. Would you welcome, please, John and Ringo and George and Paul. Here they are. Here they are, the Beatles, in my best Eamon Andrews impression. And I'm doing gay burn, doing an English voice, doing gay burn. And I'm only 26 years of age and that's it. And then gay migrated into the 1970s. But the biggest thing in the 1970s was America and American TV and Kojak and Mannix and Dallas and ads for Remington Steel. I liked it so much, I bought the company. And Gabo decided (laughs) to talk like an American. So he'd go, "Okay, folks, welcome back to the show. We got a great show for you. I like it so much, I nearly bought the rights. I'm the executive producer. The buck stops with gay. Here we go. Dermot Whelan in the audience. Mindfulness, panic attacks, the whole thing. Alcohol. I'll the whole thing in. Let's set a light on fire and burn him up. And then the final gay, the final gay was the was the contemplative, um, the contemplative older man, um, the man who had the hooded eyes and had seen it all. Don't you know, Dermot? And of course, he was blessed with his beautiful, beautiful, beautiful timbre in his voice. And there he, he could get a little younger if he wanted. And there he was, don't you know, cracking away. And what I noticed as well is when I started doing gay, I used to do gay like this, the way everybody else did gay, or a few people who tried to attempt him. They went musical. So they went, okay, okay, there you are. I'm gay, burn. I'm gay, burn. I'm gay, burn. And I realized that was only a kind of a total caricature. But one day I kind of found a pitch in my own voice, as I'm sure you found when you're trying to do an impression of somebody, that sometimes you're gifted with being lucky that you have a pitch in your voice that is similar to the person you're trying. And, and it's, it's yes. easy for you. And I remember just messing around one day, trying to do gay burn, not being able to do gay burn. And then I stopped doing gay burn. And as soon as I stopped doing gay burn, I became gay burn. And it is a bit like a, mi- a mindfulness lesson, a mindfulness lesson there for you, young Whelan, that as soon as you stop trying to do something, you achieve it. Don't you know? 
<laughs> but that's that's so true though because sometimes you'll have an impression like when you were saying my Rory started to become Dear McGavin yeah, yeah. like some impressions you have are like sliced pan they're like bread and they're the kind of base to then building onto other impressions so if you do Alan Partridge aha that's excellent. he's in he's in here but he's also Sir Terry Wogan you see <laughs> when you go a little bit higher <laughs> Oh, lovely. You start off with Alan Partridge. Aha. Yeah, and then you yeah, go, Sir Terry Wogan, up here, here, at the that's BBC. brilliant. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> and it, you know why you're so good at Terry Wogan? Because you're from fucking Limerick. That's why. So there's something in you that gives you a, a confidence because he's a Limerick boy. Um, that's a wonderful impression. I forgot that you do gave the, the Terry Wogan. That's a really good one. Really good one. Pity he's dead. Oh, well. Um, so let's move on to the what I call the comedy bit, Dermish. So when you're um, okay. feeling like when you're when 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 you're feeling like you want to take a rain check on things and you want to check out and you just want somebody to lighten the load and uh, somebody to laugh at and something that you could stick on a clip on the TV or the radio or whatever. Uh, who have you picked for our clip, our comedy clip? Well, you know what? I was actually lying in bed the other night and I was going back to my go-to clip. And I just think as a stand-up comedian or any kind of entertainer, I, I think if anyone was starting off thinking they wanted to get into comedy, I think they should be played this clip because it's Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes. And it was his last one where he knew he wasn't going to be asked back. So he did not give a shit about anything. And, you know, true comedy comes from that place of honesty and not caring who you're going to, you know, if it's truth, it, it needs to come out. And the fact that he did it at the Golden Globes in front of a squirming Tom Hanks and all the people who, you know, were so full of their own celebration in that arena. And he didn't care. He ripped through all of them. The boss of Apple was there and he was making jokes about, you know, using slaves and sweatshops in, in Asia. He, like he didn't, there was no deference to anybody. And for someone who, you know, works in that business to be that fearless and just going out there and absolutely ripping through it. And it was really interesting to see when you watch the video on YouTube to see the people who are genuinely enjoying it and, and the people who are really, really are, you know, think that he's stepped, he's crossed the line. So like you can see Leonardo DiCaprio is absolutely killing himself laughing at it. Tom Hanks is disgusted. Um, and, and just the, the faces on everybody, but the, the joy that Ricky Gervais is getting from, just gag punchline after punchline after punchline. And he kept it going right throughout the awards, not just his monologue. He kept it going. He made jokes about Harvey Weinstein and, you know, went places that most people would be afraid to. But he did it in a way that wasn't just sensationalist and, and I'm going to do a controversial joke. But he had crafted it so well that the joke had to land in the right place. And And sometimes if I'm ever you know, wondering about if you, if you feel like you're slightly rudderless if and comedy's on my mind, then I go to this because this has it all. And anyone who wants to get into comedy should aim for Ricky Gervais's Golden Globes performance. You'll, you'll be pleased to know this is the last time I'm hosting these awards, so I don't care anymore. Um, 
I'm joking. I never did. Many talented people of colour were snubbed in major categories. Um, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that. The Hollywood foreign press are all very, very racist. So, <laughs> The Irishman was amazing. It was amazing. Um, look, long, but amazing. Um, it wasn't the only epic movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, nearly three hours long, Leonardo DiCaprio attended the premiere, and by the end, his date was too old for him. So, <laughs> even Prince Andrew's like, come on, Leo, mate, you know. You're nearly 50, son. So... <laughs> <laughs> Absolute gold there from a very funny and a very brave man. Um... Uh, uh, Ricky Gervais and I'm also here with another brave man my guest on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast which I'm delighted to say is supported and brought to you by the good people at Curry's PC World Curry's PC World uh, proud supporters of the Mario Rosenstock podcast and Dermot it's time for us to talk about nightmare comedy gigs I did ask you in a question can you remember or recall because one of the funniest conversations I've had with this about this topic is with PJ Gallagher who recounts oh, yeah. with absolute horror and glee in a mixture of horror and glee his nightmare gigs um, and uh, what listening to PJ Gallagher talking about his nightmare gigs is one of the funniest things you can do as a human being yes. do you have any stories of or give us one anyway of, 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 a, of a nightmare gig that one of us that we have all had Dermot let's face it um, ironically enough it was in a place where I now live uh, I live in Hoth in County Dublin but long before I, I thought of moving here I got invited to do a gig at the Hoth Yacht Club and it was myself and Eric Lawler <laughs> who's always great crack and I was going through kind of an experimental phase shall we say and I was I was always a big fan of Eddie Izzard and I loved how he could make surreal comedy mainstream you know himself and guys like Bill Bailey You came out as a woman so well <laughs> no. uh, that was stage nine I was on stage one or two but I remember I don't actually remember the song I, I don't remember any more than actually I have a guitar here hang on I remember one line from it and I just picture in your head a load of really rich yacht club people staring with utter mm. a mixture of confusion and disdain when I was singing a song like this. What do dogs think about when they're going to the toilet? <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I remember. Because I became fascinated with that weird look that dogs give when they're going for a crap. You know, they have this kind of sheepish sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. don't look at me. I, be I became obsessed with that. Yeah. So I wrote a song about it. But, you know, it was only interesting yeah. to me. So these, they just were like, who are you? Just get off. So I did uh, about another five minutes to stony silence. And then there was like a charity clap walking off. And then Eric Lawler came on and I like, absolutely slayed the room he's like he has this great joke where he goes um you know i feel um i feel like i know i feel like you know we know each other already in fairness I, i've been in most of your houses <laughs> so <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so he just plays on the whole burglar thing does he 
Yeah, uh, he just, they just loved him. And I remember afterwards, there was a guy talking to him and I was standing beside Eric, but obviously the guy didn't remember that it was, I was the guy who'd been on first. And he's like, oh, you were so good. You were just excellent. What about the first guy? He was shite. I was, I was standing beside Eric going, yeah, yeah, he was, he was terrible. And actually on a Dermot and Dave gig in, in, um, in Long in Longford uh, in twenty nine. When did we do our last tour? Twenty nineteen. Um, we were in Longford, and uh, the show starts with me doing Tony Ca- Tony Cascarino. All right, Matt, how's it going, Matt? And I come out, and my persona of Tony Cascarino is like he's a DJ, this crazy party animal. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, sunglasses, yeah, clubber, clubber. and he's yeah, exactly. So he comes yeah. out to this huge amount of smoke and strobe lighting and everything. And I'm doing this dance. But of course, the smoke alarm, the smoke sets off the smoke alarm in the hotel. Mm. So it starts going, (laughs) (laughs) and the audience think that it's all part of Tony Cascarino's gig. Um, but we were like, no. <laughs> and the more I went, this isn't wow. meant to be happening. It's not part of the show. They're all like, ah. <laughs> and then the more <laughs> you did it, this is hilarious. Yeah. It just kept going and going and going. And of course, in those moments, the people that you need in those hotels are nowhere to be seen. They've all gone for a cigarette in Wexford. Like, so there's, it was just one sweaty lounge boy running frantically from side to side trying to find the panel of where the alarm was but yeah I just remember that the more I complained the more and no no, this isn't part of the gig this isn't part of the gig no no Okay, uh, yeah. I have a, I have one like that, Dermot. I've, I've, you've reminded me of one as well. It's not a nightmare gig. It's just a thing that didn't wasn't meant to happen. So I was I was booked in to play in the Radisson Hotel in Sligo, but we had to get going at half five from Dublin, and we made it there at ten to eight, and I'm on at eight o'clock, and I had to go on <laughs> as Enda Kenny, and for some reason we had decided I'd go on as Enda Kenny when he was Taoiseach on a Segway, one of those Segways, and I hadn't really practiced the Segway enough because um, I'd only come up to kill to Sligo, so they went the Segway's ready, get on and get on stage so the music came on and on end it comes so I segue on and I'm looking at and just as I went good evening Sligo boom boom the segue I couldn't stop it and it went into the front row of the audience (laughs) and landed on two people and the place collapsed in laughter Dermot this really heavy segue and two people but it didn't for some reason didn't hurt them but I started pumping blood out of my knee which was cut badly by the corner of the stage and people could see that my trousers were torn and there was blood coming out. And they hollered with laughter going, the fucking special effects are even a fucking amazing. The Mario hasn't even started yet. This man is gas incarnate. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I could talk to you all night. I could talk to you all night and I'm actually going to skip three questions because you've given me so much great uh, interview tonight that I'm actually going to skip three <laughs> questions and let us all go to sleep. Uh, but before I do, I'm going to ask you, we're going to sign off now, Dermot. Uh, and I'm okay. going to ask you, as a, par- as a parting gift to you, um, you have to fulfill the following for me. Would you like me to sign off with you by celebrating you as Christy Moore? Would you like to be interrogated by Miriam O'Callaghan? <laughs> or would you like to be eviscerated <laughs> by Roy Keane? Which one is it? <laughs> I want to be eviscerated by Roy Keane. I, I want to hear what Roy Keane would say about my book and mindfulness and meditation and all that stuff. Okay, well then you have to ask. It's it's pretty close to what he thinks. You have to say, you have to say, um, Roy Keane, please eviscerate me. Roy Keane, 
Please eviscerate me. Yeah, well, obviously, as I said before, like I'm looking at these lads going around, talking about <laughs> mindfulness at the end of the day, talking about de-stressing. Oh, credit to Deepak Chopra at the end of the day. But I see some of these lads. I see the lad Brezzy. You know, I mean, he can't even make up his mind. Is he a singer or is he a guru at the end of the day? And there's other fellas going around, the boy wheeling. Obviously, credit to Professor Snape impersonations. Top quality, <laughs> top drawer. But now he's talking about wanting peace and a bit of tranquility and simplicity in his life. And all these lads talking about simplicity, every one of them to a T. They've all one thing in common. They're all on about six or seven hundred grand a year. All these fucking langers. They're all on about peace and stripping it all back. And the boy Whelan's going around with his number one book. Oh, I need more tranquility at the end of the day. As the next pile of royalties slalom their way through his letterbox. I see him swanning around in his vintage Jaguar going, my mind's too full. I need to empty my mind. It's not half as full as his bank account at the end of the day. And the more stressed out everybody else is getting, the richer the boy Whelan is getting up there on Hort at his yacht club. Telling them, telling them they're stressed. Credit to vicious circles at the end of the day. And at the end, at this rate, the whole country's going to end up in St. John of God's like vegetables. <laughs> strung out on a bed not because they're stressed but because the boy Whelan has eviscerated all their wages in direct debits as Dermot Whelan has fucking filled his coffers he's filled his bags so he can free his mind and restore his vintage Jaguar <laughs> that's the best I could do anyway Dermot I, ga- oh I gave you oh my all- god I've a, I've a pain in my skull from laughing Oh, that's so good. I gave you all Roy Keane had to give. Um, Dermot, <laughs> listen, thank you so much for coming on this interview. You really are such a talented person. I'd forgotten what um, what a brilliant impressionist you are. As, as, as I keep forgetting that. Uh, I love the Terry Wogan. I thought that was hilarious. Uh, my my favourite one is probably Dermot Gavin, but I do, I do the, 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 the Terry Wogan. Again, another very hard one to do. And uh, and you you have them nailed, Dermot. Listen, there's no more required of you. Thank you so much for joining me, Mario Rosenstock. Thank you. And as Alan Partridge might say, aha! <laughs> Thanks, Mario. And thank you for listening. That was a great interview. One of my favourite interviews that I've done over the last couple of years. Um, thanks a million for listening. Um, to the Dermot Whelan interview and best of luck to Dermot Um, I think this is his third week in a row now he's been number one in the Irish charts with his book Mindful and I hurt my back this week so I didn't get a chance to read it but I flicked through it and it actually looks really entertaining so thanks for listening thanks again to Curry's PC World um, for getting involved in the podcast getting behind us um, and I hope they enjoy it too um, check out previous interviews as I've said earlier on with Ian Dempsey and Raj and George Hook and Joanna Reardon and Suzanne Kane and Connor Moore etc etc um, that's it from us that's it from me see you same time same place next week bye bye